this fresh episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and I have on the show with me regular contributor Emily Kornheiser. Hey, Emily. Hi, Olga. And yay, fresh from the Vermont Political Observer website and wonderful commentary that we all need right now, journalist John Walters. Hey, John. Good morning. Good morning. and Nice to be in Brattleboro digitally. (laughs) Indeed. Being Zoomed through the internet as we speak. Yes. Um, I also want listeners to know that we are, for the first time, doing a Facebook Live, so fingers crossed. We'll see how that works. Whole new frontier. It's very exciting. Don't read the comments. Yeah, we we won't. I <laughs> you do. I actually really enjoy the comments on my political Facebook page. I have some good conversations there. Good. Yeah. Uh, that's that's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the VT Digger just uh, just stopped doing comments on its website because I it, saw that it had trouble with uh, basically with trolls. You know, mm-hmm. they had a lot of. A lot of conservatives like to write comments on <laughs> on media pages. Yes, they do. And uh, Commons has had the same problem. And they are separate kind of, you know, they aren't Phil Scott conservatives. No. No. But speaking of Phil Scott and conservatives and media, uh, in case anyone hasn't realized, we have a primary coming up on August 11th which I know everyone always focuses on the elections, but to me, I think the primary is even more crucial because that's when you are really actually picking the candidate that you want. Um, you know, by the time we get around to the election, it's been whittled down to whoever the front runners are. Like Joe Biden. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Case in point. Um, so August 11th, we have uh, the primary coming up, like I said, I would say the two biggest statewide races to, that we're kind of watching right now are the governor and lieutenant governor. Um, and then, of course, in Wyndham County, uh, Wyndham 3 and Wyndham 4, which um, for Wyndham 3, it's Carolyn Partridge, Kelly Tully, Leslie Goldman, and Wyndham 4, Mike Maricki, uh, Michelle Boslin, Matthew Ingram, David R. Ramos and Robert DePino. If I said anyone's name wrong, I apologize. Um, which is kind of exciting because we hardly ever have contested races in Wyndham County. Um, so those are those are kind of the the big races we're watching right now. But what I'm watching, and as I'm looking at the candidates, I'm thinking about COVID and how we're kind of at this interesting transition, I think, in Vermont, where some people are starting to look at recovery and what that means and what that will look like. Meanwhile, a number of individuals, as well as industries, such as the hospitality industry, are still pretty much in crisis. They haven't even hit recovery yet. So for whoever I choose when I mark my ballot, uh, which is sitting in my post office box right now, um... I'm thinking ahead for the next two years, like who has the ability to to take us through the rest of this pandemic into a true recovery that's not just about survival, but also brings us to a point where we're better than before COVID. 
um, is my ultimate hope. So yeah, I, I, let's I, start I, with John here. <laughs> I, I, th I think it's, um, we do not know, we are just beginning to feel the effects of COVID in terms of our economy and our society. Um, you know, uh, Yelp just put out a thing earlier this week that said that a lot of the restaurants that temporarily closed due to the pandemic have switched to permanently closed, mm -hmm. like more than half. And uh, I don't, I haven't seen that play out in my town yet, but I wouldn't be surprised, you know. Um, and it's basically, it's going to change Vermont in all sorts of ways, and it's going to basically throw the usual agenda into a blender and mix it all up and whatever comes out is what we're going to have to deal with. And I think, you know, the, the, the types of questions and the types of issues we're going to face next year at this point are pretty much unpredictable. And it's going to be a whole new set of challenges. And I think, you know, to your point, Olga, um, we have to think about that in terms of who we want our leaders to be. Mm -hmm. I'll just make a, a quick note. I recently was writing something for the Vermont Business Magazine and spoke to a number of people in Windsor County for the article and how they were saying they're seeing two things. One, to some what you were saying about restaurants, um, you know, for many people in hospitality, when the pandemic hit in March and April, that's their mud season. And so they're like, we're prepared for this because mud season always stinks. But is, is COVID going to close foliage season? Is it going to close the ski season? If it does that, they're in trouble. The other thing that I spoke to a couple of real estate agents and they have seen an uptick in sales, especially in the more popular towns like Woodstock and Norwich. And again, this is Windsor County. And so we're not sure what kind of, um, you know, what is that going to mean for the housing market? What is that going to mean for vacancy rates in town? And what is that going to mean for, um, they don't know yet who these people are, if they're retirees, if they're people with young children, that might change how schools do COVID if they see an uptick in their population, which would be great. But it's also another thing to plan for. Um, so those were some of the, the things that they were kind of juggling, at least up in Windsor County. And I think we know a little more than you're, saying Olga so we um we know that we're going to see uh we are already seeing a further shortage in the local housing market as you know houses are selling faster people who have been looking for sort of slowly for a year are seeing you know houses moving at asking price for cash day they go on the market down here um we know that in some school districts around the county that um, we already are going to see sort of double the number of students. Some of those are districts that have absolutely not budgeted for that, especially um, districts that might be sending towns rather than have sort of infrastructure that might be sitting empty. Mm -hmm. Big challenges there. And then the thing that keeps me um, just in full scale terror is the fact that our unemployment insurance, the extra $600 is expiring this week. And there seems to be no plan for what comes next. And that I think more than mud season, more than tax return season is what has really sustained us decently to weather anything thus far. And it's, um, 
it's troubling to me when people in power say, oh my goodness, what are we gonna do? I wish they would do something. And I know that I'm one of the they that's supposed to do something. But when we talk about something on the scale of unemployment insurance, it really is something that the state struggles mightily to take full responsibility for because so many of the rules are actual, actually federal rules. Mm -hmm. And we've already tried to make some changes and accommodations that the feds have said no to. Yeah. As an a example. Lot of, <clears throat> a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the stuff dealing with COVID, particularly the financial stuff, is going to depend on the federal response. You know, the state's ability to respond is pretty limited. Our resources are going to be tighter than ever. Like uh, we're looking at drastic changes in the budget for next year, possibly. Uh, and our ability to respond positively is going to be very greatly restricted. And if Washington is generous, we will probably get through this. And if you know, if they turn off the spigot down there. We're going to be really scrambling. Mm -hmm. I'd rather think of it as cake than spigots at this point, John, because that's sort of <laughs> how it feels like they might they might deliver some crumbs to poor Vermont. Um, Yay! Yeah. So then, when I think about when I and in all this context, you know, we've been talking now every week for months about the cracks widening mm -hmm. and how this time has allowed so many more of us to see so many of the long-standing challenges in our community around housing security, food security, health insecurity, gender bias, huge challenges around racial justice. And so as more people have their eyes on these issues, ideally that would make election season much more exciting. Right, we would see people um, saying things that haven't been said before, or vowing to um, face challenges that people might have been hesitant to speak up about. I'm I'm not entirely seeing that this election season, um, and maybe it's because it's very hard to get like super fired up on Zoom because you just wind up looking like a excited bobblehead, but. <laughs> I want, I want a little more fire. We are in crisis. What does it take to weather a crisis? Yeah, so. I, I feel that too. I really want to hear new ideas and, and creative ideas. And I haven't been hearing anything like that. It's easy to say things like, oh, well, let's have a bold vision or let's, let's take risks or, or what have you. But it's very different to follow those up with ideas or suggestions, and I haven't heard any of those things. How about you, John? Well, uh, I haven't heard much either. Um, I have to go back and listen to some of the VPR, VT, PBS debates that I did not catch live. Um, but uh, it, it doesn't seem like uh, the candidates are really responding to the moment in a way that you would hope they, they would. Um, and it's, it's, it's such a weird election because they can't communicate in, in most of their normal ways, you know, going around to communities and holding events and, you know, talking to people directly. They have to hope that people come to them on things like Zoom and Facebook. Uh, and that I, I think a lot of the candidates are, are just struggling with how do I campaign? Um, and the other thing is that, I mean, we talk about the election being on August 11th, but in truth, the election has already begun. I voted already. Uh, so, and, and there's a 
there are more, more people have requested absentee ballots for the primary than voted in the last primary in 2018. So what are all those people doing? Are they making up their minds already? Are they waiting until the last minute because they can't make up their minds? Um, it, it's it's going to be, are they going to just like never vote even though they got the ballot? Um, we don't know. Uh, the, the, the turnout could be shattering all records for a primary or it could be very low mm -hmm. um, so it's it's going to be weird but yeah I mean maybe part of the reason that it seems like such a low-key campaign a lot of it is because of the pandemic but some of it is because they the candidates don't seem to be addressing the pandemic it seems like an incredible opportunity in some ways so you don't need to get the very excited driven focused primary you know the primary and campaigning in a primary, according to sort of usual election strategy, is very, very focused on your core party demographic, right? And so, you know, for a Democrat in Wendham County, say, that's like you're really focusing on your older, you know, 10-year voting record, 20-year voting record, 30-year voting record, Dem candidate, you know, Dem voters. Um, and that's all you should be paying attention to, and that's who you should be focused your messaging on. But in an election where so many more people are going to have access and where you don't need to get people to go to an awkward house party or show up at a strange rally, but in fact, in the comfort of your own home, you can just tune in and pay attention. I would think that there's an opportunity to bring so many more people into the process. Um, but you need to find a voice that breaks through the noise. And what I've seen so far is folks seem to really be sort of running on personality and vibe and less on say a marketplace of ideas i yeah i think that's a very good point um i i find it interesting too you know most people i speak with when it comes to the governor's race at least phil scott is feeling super safe right now because he to give him credit he and his team have had a pretty steady, solid response to the pandemic. Um, but as someone who, who used to work in emergency response and, and emergency preparedness, the skills you need for the crisis are not necessarily the same skills you need for the recovery. Um, and maybe Scott has those, I don't know. But when I look at the slate of people, it's like I really want to hear people talk about what's next and how are we going to move forward? And I don't, I don't hear that right now. And what I, I want I is, ahead, what I want is leaders and not managers. Yes. I think a manager can often be very good through a crisis. And I, I'm not sure Scott is actually that great a manager. I think, um, you know, the promotion of the department of labor is sort of good evidence to me of terrible management. Um, but when we're thinking about next steps and we're thinking about building a future, you need to really be leading and managing simultaneously, managing to get through the crisis, leading to think about the future. Yeah, I think uh, Phil Scott is a, a cromulent manager, I would say. Um, and he has done a good job, at least in responding to the crisis. I, I think he can be faulted for not being out front a little more. Like for instance, with the current 
issue, which may be settled by the time people listen to or watch this, uh, of uh, the mask mandate. You know, he has been slow and careful and cautious when maybe arguably he should have been a little more aggressive. But I am concerned about whether he can be a, a true leader, a visionary, because he really hasn't shown that in, you know, the three and a half years of his governorship so far. Uh, you know, he has put out a few ideas, but he talks about system, bold systemic change, but he doesn't propose it and he doesn't fight for it. And I worry that we're going to be in the same situation if he's reelected, uh, where he is bound by sort of conventional thinking and doesn't think in new ways about whatever the new reality will be. Mm -hmm. So just to, for a reminder for people, uh, running for governor, at least right now, if, if I may have missed some independence, but on the Republican ticket, we have Phil Scott, the incumbent, uh, Douglas Cavett, John Clark, and Emily Payton. Um, and then on the Democratic ticket, Ralph Corbo, Rebecca Holcomb, David Zuckerman, Patrick Winburn, and then on the progressive ticket, Chris Erickson. And for at least those of us who have been following Vermont politics, a lot of those names are, are recognizable. We've seen them before. Uh, people like Rebecca Holcomb have actually held um, positions in state government. She, she used to head the Department of Education, uh, the Agency of Education. Um, David Zuckerman, of course, lieutenant, current lieutenant governor. Uh, Chris Erickson, Emily Payton, longtime can candidates. But among that slate, I, I don't want to miss out on the point that Emily Payton has moved from Liberty Union to the Republican ticket in this race. And I just, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on that topic, but it is a, a fascinating twist on the usual Vermont parade of suspects. It, you know, I have to admit, when I saw her make that shift, I, I it's a little mind boggling. <laughs> I don't think much about Emily Payton or Chris Erickson myself. So of that slate, who have you or, seen? Or, or not, not, nothing about, you know, women candidates, just fringe candidates. Yes. That, thank you for that clarification. I think Emily and I got that at least. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so of, my, of these people, are we seeing any bold visionaries on this slate so far? And what do well, we need from them? And I don't want to make the mistake of saying some people should step back from the race, but I think we could name who the clear front runners are that are actually um, the folks that we're talking about here. Um, well, if you're, if you're talking about the race for governor, it's basically David Zuckerman and Rebecca Holcomb. Uh, those are the two who have a chance to win the primary, I think. For the Democratic ticket. Democratic ticket, yes. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of a a very interesting contrast in in style and approach and also uh, creates sort of a, a dilemma for people both in terms of their political leanings because you know Holcomb's background is more as a technocrat, Zuckerman is a progressive, um, but also like in terms of electability, you know, there's sort of a, a sort of a broad assumption that Zuckerman will probably win the primary uh, and might be a stronger candidate against Phil Scott in the fall. So do you vote for the candidate you think might have a better chance? Do you vote for the candidate you really like? Does that break down on 
ideological lines or does it break down on like who you think would be the best governor? Uh, it's, it's an interesting choice that people uh, are faced with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, what we talked about needing leaders right now. Yeah. What, what do we need our leaders? What skill sets do we let? Let's try to drill down to that and get some definitions. Like what skill sets do we really need from people right now? Um, what, what tools do they need to have in their toolbox? Well, it, there again, you, you, you could make the argument that Zuckerman might be the more visionary because he has been a staunch progressive sort of in the Bernie Sanders mold. Uh, you could make the argument that Holcomb as an experienced administrator might be best equipped to manage and lead government uh, through a time when things are going to be really tight no matter what we do. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of how I framed uh, the choice. Uh, and it was not an easy choice. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. How about you, Emily? What what do you feel leaders we need from our leader right now? Um, I think we need leaders who can lead with courage, and I think that's a really hard thing to do on a campaign trail. Um, I don't think campaigns often value courage, um, but we need people who can say what isn't being said. Um, who can name our fears aloud so that we can actually face them and make decisions about them. And there are very few campaign advisors who would say, yes, you should name people's fears, right? You should name people's hopes. You should hearken back to past visions. Um, but we're, we're going to see, we have seen rep, you know, intense disruption and that is not going to end. And so I want leaders who will name that, that you know, people are losing jobs, businesses are going to close, schools are going to struggle. What do we want next and how do we wanna make those decisions together? Um, I want leaders who are gonna name the intense fiscal crisis that we're about to face and actually have a proposal for facing it. And so those are leaders who can talk about tax policy. And that is a terrifying thing to do in the face of Phil Scott. Um, because he has run on this very tidy affordability narrative that breaks down within 15 sentences, but you have to be able to take the time to get through those 15 sentences. Mm -hmm. And so that's what, I, that's what I want in a candidate and that's what I want in a leader. I also want someone who can bring out the best in the people who are working with them. And so the governor does not make decisions alone. No one makes decisions alone, but there is a cabinet and there are agency leaders and someone who can really say, you know, ask people to think outside the box, ask people to find out what their, you know, line staff are thinking and what people are struggling with on the ground to really understand an organization and um, in, empower and enable the voices of the folks within that organization to do the best they can. Mm -hmm. I think that makes a big difference. I appreciate that through the Lieutenant Governor's um, term, he, which is being Lieutenant Governor is a, um, there's not a lot of power there. And so it is in some ways what a person makes of it. 
and he has really been very focused in some ways on make you know getting more folks into the state house getting more folks engaged in the political process he being zuckerman zuckerman yes um curious to see how that translates to really bringing more people like once someone has power does that mean that they actually understand the voices of the folks that they're serving more i'm not sure Mm -hmm. um you know we we're just about needing to go to break but one thing you said, Emily, that I think we as voters need to sit with too, is you said, you know, leading with courage. And I often feel Vermonters don't tend to vote with courage. We tend to reelect and reelect and reelect incumbents over and over and over again. And, and we, we kind of go with what we know and what's safe sometimes. So, you know, it's kind of beholden on us too to make sure that when we cast our ballots, we're, we're kind of looking with courage as well and voting with courage. We are going to head to break here on the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 FM, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, Emily Kornheiser, and John Walters, and I will return in a moment. WBEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and I have with me Emily Kornheiser and John Walters. We are talking about the upcoming primary and who's in the running and are they ready for the rest of this COVID pandemic? So do they really want to win? (laughs) Yeah, right. I've been thinking about writing a blog post called Winner's Remorse, you know, uh, because the winner's going to face a huge pile of problems. Yeah, whoever wins might be the dog that caught the car and then be like, oh, what do we do now? (laughs) Um, For those who are just joining us at the top of the hour, we talked about the governor's race. We're going to dive into the lieutenant governor's race, but I must remind people that the opinions expressed on this show are those of the host and the guests and not the radio station. So there you go. That deed is done. Um, John, let's start with the Lieutenant Governor race. It's pretty fascinating. On the Republican side, we have Scott Milne, who has run, it, people may remember, he ran against uh, Governor Shumlin way back when, uh, for governor. Dana Colson Jr., is it Jim Hoke? Am I saying that right? We'll go with that. Meg Hansen. And then on the Democratic ticket, Tim Ash, the current uh, pro tem for the Senate. Brenda Siegel, who is a local Wyndham County person, ran for governor last uh, last round. Debbie Ingram, uh, Molly Gray. And then for the progressives, again, we have Chris Erickson. So I don't know about you folks, but the lieutenant governor's race has been blowing up my phone. Like every day I get a text message. I get a voicemail from one of them saying, will you join me? Will you show your support? Um, A whole new world for Vermont politics. I've never seen a lieutenant governor's race this kind of interesting before. Or with this kind of spending. Mm -hmm. But I think the link between your telephone blowing up and the spending happening. And, and to be yeah. honest, you know, for 
really compelling candidates in very different ways uh, and for people who would take the office in presumably very different directions uh, and have very different styles. I mean, the office itself is not much, as Emily said earlier, uh, it's holding the gavel in the Senate um, and it's sort of having a space in the state house and a bully pulpit uh, from which to share your ideas and you know maybe try to have some influence uh, from, from your perch in the Senate. Uh, but One know. more thing that the lieutenant governor does that we don't talk about very much, and it's very inside baseball, but very, very influential, and that is the committee on committees in the yes. Senate. Yes. Right. And so this person is one, going to be one of three people that helps look at the committee composition in the Senate, which is where much power and decision-making lies, who decides whose chair is. In the House, that happens just the Speaker of the House makes that decision by herself. I mean, in collaboration with some people, but essentially it's her decision. In the Senate, that is not how the sausage is made or the committees are formed. And so I think we're all assuming there's gonna be some sort of shakeup in the Senate this coming biennium, but how far that shakeup's going to go is really quite dependent on who's sitting in that Lieutenant Governor's seat. Yes, Very and at least point. two of the three seats are going to change. We know that for sure. Uh, your own Becca Ballant seems to be in line to, to replace Tim Ash as president pro tem. Uh, we're going to have a new Lieutenant Governor. Uh, one of the little inside baseball dramas will be, do they continue to have Dick Maza as the third member? Uh, he's been in the Senate forever and ever. Uh, he's a very moderate Democrat who is Phil Scott's biggest fan. Uh, but he's been the third member on the Committee on Committees uh, for a very long time. Uh, so again, inside baseball, but as Emily said, important in terms of the makeup of the committees uh, in, uh, in the Senate, uh, which in my own view, not that of the radio station, uh, could use a little bit of a shakeup. Uh, the Senate depends pretty heavily on seniority. Some of those senior people do a very good job, and some of them are kind of... Um, uh, punching the clock, shall we say. But anyway, uh, we are getting far afield from the Lieutenant Governor's race, which, which is very interesting in itself, and we do need to spend some time on that. Why do you think this is the year we're having such a dynamic Lieutenant Governor's race, if it's a position that may not be as powerful as some of the other positions people could be elected to? Well, I think it is a very helpful launching point for other political office. And we know, and I don't know if this is true for all of the folks entering, running for Lieutenant Governor, but we know that all three of our congressional seats are likely to change very, very soon. And so none of those seats have been open for a very long time. And they're likely all going to open up within a few years of each other. And so the, the race for what's next, there's been a lot of sort of sitting on hands, I think, for folks who really wanna take um, the next step in political leadership. And that race is sort of heating up a bit. So I think that's one of the factors, not the only. And, and the governorship is going to open up sooner or later. Uh, Phil Scott is nearing the end of his second term. Uh, most governors don't make it past four uh, there's a lot of speculation that he might step aside after the next term if he's reelected, uh, although I don't necessarily buy that. 
But in any case, you know, 2022 or 2024, chances are the governorship will be open as well. Uh, and uh, as, as has been noted uh, frequently and despaired over, uh, Vermont is the only state to never send a woman to Congress. And uh, so that is a powerful driving force. And I think that's part of the reason that there are three women of the four major candidates for Lieutenant Governor, three of them are women. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, including me, uh, that's a factor in the decision-making is wanting to have woman, women on the launch pad, ready to run for higher office when those opportunities come up. Thank you, John. Um, so how much does COVID recovery factor into this discussion around Lieutenant Governor? Or does it not because it's just a position without a lot of power? Well, you do have the bully pulpit and you can, you know, be a leader without power, minister without portfolio, I guess. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Brenda Siegel, for instance, makes a lot uh, of that uh, ability to, you're inside the building, but you're not of the building. And she wants to really sort of, even more so than David Zuckerman, make the Lieutenant Governor position a way to bring in the voices that aren't generally heard in Vermont politics. Uh, and really make that a conduit for people who are not heard in the political system as she herself feels about herself. She is the kind of person who normally doesn't get much play in, in the political arena or in the state house. So, you know, that is one way in which a Lieutenant Governor can make, uh, can make an impact, uh, not necessarily on policymaking, but on the political discussion. Can I ask you a question about that, John? Um... I'm curious about Brenda being that kind of person, um, partly because I think Brenda and I are almost demographically identical. Um, <laughs> and I don't think of myself as that kind of person. I think of myself as a person with a tremendous amount of um, privilege and positional privilege. And so we you know, both grew up very comfortably middle-class Jewish, have been single mothers, you know, made it through with the resilience built from um, those younger years and that educational and economic privilege. And so I have such a hard time getting my head around what it would actually mean to bring more people's voices into that building with the absence of the people that are in that building being ready and willing to actually listen to those voices. Yeah. So for me, it's not about having one person opening the door. It's about like fundamentally changing the composition of the legislature. Mm -hmm. Well, um, that's that's a perfectly good point. Um, you know, part of for for me, part of the attraction of of thinking about Brenda Siegel as lieutenant governor is just like uh, the entertainment value of having her on the committee on committees and uh, of her being in the ceremonial position where she is the least ceremonial person you could think of, uh, and just sort of like a, you know her her potential as a chaos agent, uh, which doesn't which factors into the thinking of people like political commentators uh, <laughs> should not, you know, doesn't necessarily make sense in terms of, you know, actually having a functioning government. Uh, but, you know, uh, she is a firebrand uh, and, uh, you know, I give her full credit for making a place for herself in Vermont politics that, that seemed highly unlikely just a couple of years ago. 
Um, so, which is not to say I voted for her, uh, but um, but I think you know uh, she has to be credited for doing what she has already done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, and she when we talked about courage, she says things that other people aren't saying very very much of the time. One thing I was thinking about yesterday in the lieutenant governor's race is um, the we've seen the Democratic establishment, long time, huge donors, um, past governors, really line up behind Molly Gray. And I, it's very interesting in the face of um, the person with the most sort of Democratic establishment background in this race is actually Tim Ash, who has been in the Senate as a PDDP, yes, but really leading, um, leading that body for quite a while. And so in terms of, you know, the difference between the democratic establishment that's outside the building and the democratic establishment that's inside the building and the choices they make, I think is very interesting. And I'm curious if you have any insight on that. Uh, it, it's, the, the Molly Gray phenomenon, I, 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 I'm hoping to get a chance to talk with her at some length after the primary um, uh, to figure out exactly how she got where she is. You know, she has some connections with a congressional delegation. Um, several current and former Pat Leahy staffers are supporting her. Uh, she worked for Peter Welch for a while. Um, She's an assistant attorney general, but that's not that's not a platform for running for office. She's never run for office before, and she came out of nowhere, seemingly, in January. I remember when her name started being floated around, like Molly Gray might run for lieutenant governor, and everybody in the state house is going, "Who's Molly Gray?" And um, you know, there are a lot of assistant attorneys general. Um, so, you know, she seemingly came out of nowhere and raised a whole lot of money and, and from the get-go had the support of some extremely influential people in democratic circles. And, you know, if you, if you take the race at face value and not consider everything that came before, you would have to say she's the favorite, uh, which is weird as, as, as Emily said, you know, with Tim Ash being the leader of the Senate, and you know, with Debbie Ingram being, you know, one of the true veterans and and a real progressive voice in the Senate, uh, you know, and and as you know, when I talked to Senator Ingram at the beginning of her campaign, you know, she said, uh, "Well, I may not be the best known person in like uh, political media circles, but she has been working on social justice issues for a long time. She's an ordained minister, and she's very well known in those circles." She has a lot of credibility in sort of the, the fighting addiction arena. Uh, and, you know, you would think that either Ash or Ingram uh, would be able to attract a lot of support among the Democratic, you know, power. Uh, but it's all behind Molly Gray. Uh, so it'll be fascinating to see whether that translates into actual votes. I do. I think of Senator Ingram as the candidate with the strongest qualms in fighting for the issues that the left really prizes um, around racial justice issues, social justice issues. I think the conversations that she's led statewide around the moral economy are um, incredibly poignant and will be very helpful in this time that we have coming forward. 
I have a harder time understanding Molly Gray's platform. And um, while I can see sort of, I can help imagine that vision of Vermont that she's envisioning, I am I've been trying to unpack how we would get from here to there and what that looks like. She, she, uh, the, the first thing she will tell you is her story. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a very compelling story. But, you know, I, I watched the Democratic Lieutenant Governor debate, uh, which you can still see on the Vermont PBS website. Um, and, you know, she kind of ran out of gas, you know, it was like a 50 minute debate. And, you know, by the end of it, she was sort of recycling talking points that she hit earlier on. And she, she failed to answer. She was the only one of the four candidates who didn't endorse a mask mandate. Although afterwards, she said that she does support it. Uh, she completely ducked a question on school consolidation. Uh, instead of addressing Act 46 and the ramifications thereof, she put out a boilerplate statement about how we got to support our local schools. So the question is, you know, is she the Potemkin candidate or is there actually substance there? Uh, her biography would indicate that, yeah, there is some substance. I mean, she's from Vermont. She knows the challenges of Vermont outside of Chittenden County. She worked for the Red Cross. She worked on international aid and, and those kinds of issues for several years. Uh, so there would seem to be some substance there, but in, in her appearances, uh, she comes across as kind of slick and packaged. And that does make you wonder what kind of a leader she would actually be. I also, um, thinking about elections past, I, Sue Minter, last time around, mm -hmm. um, was considered an overly packaged, overly peppy, overly female candidate by many people. Um, and I find it fascinating sociologically more than politically that Molly Gray is um, even more is better packaged, I think, in a lot of ways. I'm like really blown away by the skill of her staff in terms of their graphic design and their social media and um, how well Molly seems to understand a camera and um, especially sort of in these virtual environments we're in. And so is also, you know, very well packaged, um, great talking points, you know, very female as well. Um, and yet, and by, you know, by very female, I mean, she um, is comfortable hearkening back to sort of power moves of women past, um, you know, she wears pearls very comfortably. That's, you know, that is in some ways a sort of risky move. Um, when we think about how people perceive female candidates. But that was really a negative for Sue in a lot of ways and is not for Molly. And I, I want to understand why. I, you know, my response to that is, you know, I really liked Sue Minter and I really liked all the times I, I had a chance to interview her. And, and yes, she did come across as very packaged. I think you and I actually once had a conversation where I said, does Emerge Vermont just like give women scripts and they're expected to follow them? Because that's what it feels like. And I think for me, when I look at Sue and I look at Molly, two things have happened. One, Sue didn't seem comfortable with the packaging. 
Like it felt like she was fighting against her packaging. Um, like it was something she was told she had to wear rather than something she picked out herself. But the other thing is, you know, I think enough time has passed and I think this might speak to how Vermont politics have changed. I think people, I think Vermonters themselves are becoming more comfortable with the slick packaging and perhaps we even expect it. I don't know, John, what do you see? Well, uh, it, it again, you know, again, you know, Molly Gray is such a phenomenon at this point. I mean, it'll, it'll be, it'll all be over if she doesn't win on August 11th. Uh, if she does win on August 11th, then she is suddenly the, the rising star in Vermont politics. Uh, and that's another aspect of this that is purely political, which is we may see a sea change in who's sort of at the neck, at the rung below the top of the ladder with David Zuckerman trying for governor, Tim Ash trying for lieutenant governor, uh, and uh, also uh, Murrow Weinberger, the mayor of Burlington, having a really big problem with a really big hole in the ground. He used to be talked about as a potential future candidate for statewide office. And yeah, I, I don't think that's that happening anymore. Has, that ship has sailed. I don't mm -hmm. think he's even running for re-election in, in Burlington. Um, but um, I have no basis for that. Um, but anyway, uh, Ma, you know, these, these guys who were seen as near the top of the list for when all those openings happen might all be gone. And of course, they could all make comebacks. Uh, there's nothing to bar, you know, David Zuckerman from running again for another office if he doesn't win this year. But uh, Molly Gray will be at the very top of the list if she does win the primary because, you know, the winner of the Democratic primary is almost certain to be elected go uh, lieutenant governor. And then she's in a high visibility spot. Whoever wins that race is in a high visibility spot uh, for, you know, future runs for other offices. And, you know, that's why, you know, a lot of my thinking has been about really wanting to have a woman, you know, in that next tier, uh, solidly established. Um, and, uh, you know, why I didn't really consider Tim Ash to be perfectly frank. Uh, all that much because you know I I I want there to be more women in high office, not just in the you know the middle ranks and the lower ranks where there are plenty of women, but I want there to be women you know running for Congress and and representing us in Congress and being governor. So, so. I hosted an emerged candidates forum last night for um, a few of the seats down here, and one of the questions that I brought in was why do we want women to be in elected office? And for me, it's really important to me that um, I don't want women in elected office just to have you know someone to have a woman there. I want women to be in elected office because they'll bring those experiences to fight for the rights of the most marginalized women in our communities. And I don't think all women do that equally. Um, I also, Olga, I'm gonna push back on the sleek packaging and Vermonters. Um, maybe that's a little bit true. I also think that people are much more comfortable with young women than with older women. Um, uh, yes. And I think people trust younger women more than they trust older women in a lot of ways. Um, and I think they find them less threatening. I would agree with hopeful. that. Um, 
I so, didn't think of the age difference between Sue and Molly, but yes, now that you bring that up, I totally agree. And not that one makes one more qualified or less qualified. Mm -hmm. I just think that in terms of sort of sociological comfort level with power and imagining someone in power, it's, um, it's very different for people. Mm -hmm. So when we think about these candidates, what have they what have they said about what they're going to actually do for the most marginalized people in our community, of which we are about to have many, many more, right? We are about to have many more people living in poverty. We're about to have many more kids not getting the special education services they need. Yeah, we're, we're about to have one of, the, one of the coming economic ramifications of the pandemic is uh, we may see a huge wave of, of evictions mm -hmm. and possessions. Uh, and people suddenly scrambling for housing um, in a market where there isn't a lot of affordable housing. Um, you know, we may see a lot of, you know, low to middle income people, whether they've lost their jobs already or not, they probably will start losing more jobs. Uh, and it's, it's going to have, you know, echo effects uh, on and on. And, you know, the real estate thing, if you, if you have, you know, nice communities, quote unquote, having a lot of interest from outside buyers like Woodstock. Uh, does that further split the difference between the haves and the have-nots in terms of towns and cities? You know, do you get more people in Burlington and Chittenden County? Do you get more people in Montpelier? Do you get more people in places like Woodstock and the Upper Valley? Um, and then not in the rural communities that are right next door. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there are, uh, and this is all to elaborate on Emily's point, which is, you know, we are likely to emerge from this with a lot more have-nots yeah. and a lot more need to address social equity issues and not much in the way of resources to, to address them. And I, um, that idea about the nice communities and the not nice communities is interesting, especially when we... Um... I kind of like not nice community. I kind of like communities with an edge to them. You know, I live in Montpelier, but I actually kind of, in some ways, I like Barry better. Barry's where you keep all your fast food restaurants in Montpelier. Um, <laughs> sorry, that's, you know, people often pride themselves for the only state capital without a McDonald's. And we're like, don't worry. You it's know, right next door. Right next right door. Next yes. Um, <laughs> in Wyndham County, I don't think that is how things have played out yet in the real estate market. We are seeing these... Um, very quick buy-ups across the county, not really discriminating based on town. Um, I, my understanding is that's true in the kingdom and in Windsor County, um, partly because what looks, you know, the nuances between say, um, you know, a Brattleboro and a Dummerston, I think might be a little bit lost on someone coming from an apartment in Brooklyn that they haven't been able to leave for four months. <laughs> um and so we'll, we'll probably just want a house in the country yes <laughs> yeah. yes yeah. yeah but again i mean just the fact that these people are buying up houses and maybe driving up real estate prices when we already have a shortage of affordable housing mm -hmm. you know, more mm -hmm. have nots more need to to hear those voices and address the needs of those people in public policy and you know to look at molly gray's biography, you would think that she's got a lot of experience and, you know, growing up in rural Vermont, growing up on a farm, uh, you know, working in international aid. Uh, she might have a lot of experience in, in like addressing those kinds of problems. 
but it doesn't necessarily show in her campaign uh, rhetoric. Well, and one thing too that's happening here, I find, and Emily and I have talked about this a lot, you know, one of the problems Vermont went into this pandemic with was compared to our neighbors in, in, in New England, our wages are low. And they're lower than what most people need them to be to meet their cost of living. And so none of what we have been talking about or policies we hear talked about really address some of those, that core issue that a lot of people just need more money. And an economy that's sustained on charity, um, which is an economy that has many nonprofit jobs, um, many folks, you know, receiving benefits is not a thriving economy. And so for me, there's a real opportunity in the struggles of our tourism industry to say, what is a different economy that we want to build mm -hmm. that has those living wage jobs? Um, yeah. What is an economy that we want to build where nonprofits um, are part of the picture, but not the largest employer? how can we how can we really stretch this vision of who vermont is and that, that's the kind of question we really haven't heard any candidates talk about in any meaningful way yeah which brings us back to it's very easy to say we need bold vision or <laughs> bold ideas but we we actually you know what how, how's the saying show me the money <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, we are just about out of time. Um, any quick thoughts we want to leave listeners with before we head out for the day? Well, are we doing our toast? We should do our toast. Do you have okay. one in mind? I do. Do we have time to briefly address the auditor's race? Oh, yes, please. Yes, we have like two minutes. Go for it. <laughs> well, Emily, that was, that was your thing. So you start. Yes, I just... Um... So I am a government geek. I think we all know that um, government accountability is incredibly important to me. There was a long period in my life where I wanted to move to DC and work for the GAO or perhaps the census deep in a bureaucracy somewhere. And I know that very few people have any idea what our auditor does or even the, off the point of the office of the auditor. And so really encourage people to just dive in a little bit. The, Office of the Auditor, as it is now conceived um, under Auditor Hoffer, is around performance auditing. And that means really looking at what are the goals of government and how are the programs meeting those goals, both fiscally and programmatically. And so what it is, it's essentially a watchdog agency that sits within government and has incredible potential for us to look at the work we're doing and say, is this the right way to do it? And so I have personally really valued the auditor's work thus far in my time in the legislature to be the person who comes into the room and say, I know that you all feel very good about this program, but it is proven ineffective over and over and over and over again. So stop funding it. <laughs> <laughs> and we often don't listen to him, which is horrifying, but it is an incredibly powerful voice to have within government someone saying those things. Mm -hmm. So what's happened is Doug Offer has been auditor for, for a while, and uh, he's suddenly getting a challenge from uh, uh, Representative Linda Joy Sullivan uh, from Bennington County. Uh, and she has sort of made her bones as a sort of a, a very moderate and fiscally minded Democrat. Uh, and I mean, 
you know, that's great, but I mean, the, the, the chances of her winning the primary against an incumbent in a position where people really don't pay that much attention seems to me zero. And I don't know how well, Emily, I don't know how well you know Linda Joy Sullivan, but uh, I have no particular insight into why she even ran. And she's simultaneously running for re-election. <laughs> so um, I don't know. Uh, what do, do you do? You see any any you know value in her candidacy or, or any validity? Um, I don't understand quite why she ran. I she very much prides herself and speaks very regularly in legislative debates, not necessarily on the floor, but sort of in the hallway um, around her qualms as a financial auditor. And so I think that's the distinction that she's trying to draw, that she's sort of the financial auditor and um, Auditor Hoffer is the performance auditor. However, the person in the chief position does not actually do the spreadsheets, right? Um, they're supervising people who, who do. And the fiscal audits that come out of the auditor's office are, you know, we use them for TIF districts, a few other things. They're perfectly sufficient and lovely fiscal audits that are within, you know, national code. But the performance audits, I think, are where the real impact is in terms of shifting conversations within the state and understanding if we're um, being prudent and effective with our spending. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, we should wrap. So, Emily, your toast. My toast is to political courage, to the absolute incredible speech that we saw yesterday on C-SPAN from Alexandria Octavio-Cortez, and to speaking truth to power in the halls of power, and with um, some sorrow for all the people who have put, had to put their voices and their lives on the line um, on behalf of so many people who haven't been able to. So. To political courage. To political courage. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. You can find us every Friday at 2 p.m. on the radio station, as well as our Vermontitude SoundCloud page, our Vermontitude Facebook page, and now Emily's uh, political page on Facebook Live. So, mm -hmm. and John, remind us your uh, website. Well, it's it's very simple. I, I my blog is the Vermont Political Observer, and it is thevpo.org, and on Twitter at at thevpo one, and the number one is there because the the Vienna Philharmonic beat me out to the VPO. <laughs> and Fabulous Twitter feed. Highly recommend John's Twitter. The blog is also fabulous, but the Twitter is a great little sample step into the blog. And folks can find me at emilykornheiser.org or on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, weekly forums as advertised on Front Porch Forum. I'm sure there are other places too, but those are a good start. And everyone, have a great weekend. We will be talking to you next week. In the meantime, check out those candidates and check your post office box for your ballot. Make sure you vote in the uh, primary. Take care, everyone.